Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. This is part two in the story of how feature films in Canada got their start. As mentioned in part one, I will be using as a reference a book called The Canada's Hollywood by Ted Magner. In this episode, we talk about the CFDC, the Canadian Film Development Corporation. We go into all the details about what happened after its creation and then talk about the film quotas and levies. Chapter 7 So, even though the legislation had been passed to form the CFDC, the government took its time to actually get going. The chairperson and the board of directors were not appointed until February 1968. And one year later, Michael Spencer was named executive director. And it was late fall before the corporation made its first investment. And the author in the book says here, well, since it had taken the federal government over 40 years to initiate some form of public support for future films, this latest procrastination may seem neither inconsequential nor surprising. The CFDC approached the issue of Canadian content with a carrot by offering subsidies to defray or underwrite the cost of production. But the one-time grant of $10 million and the decision to forego legislative measures with respect to distribution and exhibition also suggest that the state was taking a minimalist approach. The corporation was not to engage in production itself. It was to operate as a banker with a solid interest in securing a return on its own investments. So they thought that the corporation would have a finite existence. The government, I guess, thought it would be limited. It was to establish the foundation for a future film industry, and over time it would become self-financing and self-generating. So they thought. But since the government took no action whatsoever about the problems of exhibition and distribution of films in Canada, this was not going to be successful. The corporation was not empowered to regulate the circuit of distribution and exhibition. It was only there to advise and assist producers in their search for a deal. So the CFDC had been in the so-called movie business for less than a year. Of course, then they were called to make their presentation before the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Broadcasting Films in the Arts. And the man in charge of that described the CFDC as a specialized bank established to provide financial assistance on the basis of which a film can be launched. Quote, we are not filmmakers, he explained. We are just investing money in making loans. If we were to judge our scripts from an intellectual and cultural point of view, we would not be a bank anymore. Aha. Uh-huh. That explains a few things. Well, there were script problems from day one. Didn't seem like anybody even read the script. That was the problem. So, the fun is there. It's going. It's, I guess, effective, more or less. But because it only had $10 million, it was decided that the, that the CFDC would invest a maximum of 300000 and not more than 50% of the production costs in any one feature film. Eligible projects would have a distribution contract already in hand, and so on. So the emphasis was on solid, market-oriented production. So an interesting note here, by the summer of 1968, not very long after it was first created, the CFDC would consider involvement in projects where foreigners 
occupied many of the key creative roles. First movie that the CFDC put money in was a film called Explosion, produced by Nat Taylor. One film critic described Explosion as an inept piece of action trash about a young man who, troubled by the death of his brother in, in Vietnam and harassed by an overbearing father, flees to Vancouver and drifts into a life of crime. The movie's Canadian content was satisfied by the virtue of its location and the use of Canadian technicians. Another project was Paul Allman's film called Act of the Heart with Geneviève Bujot and Donald Sutherland. It received a generous backing from Universal Studios in the U.S. And that movie was a psychological drama about a young woman's love for a monk. So it was kind of an eclectic range of movies that they loaned money to. In contrast to the CFDC, other films were being made without government money. So we're talking about the, the late 60s. Uh, there was, so there was actually in Canada some producers investing private money. In 1969, there was a Quebec producer called Denis Héroux, and he released a movie called Valerie. It cost $70,000. It was made in black and white with uh, purely private money, nothing from the government. And it earned over a million dollars in Quebec province. Uh, and basically the reason why is because it had a lot of nudity. Because so, this was the, in the late 60s, 69. Uh, so it had to do with the fact that the success had to do with the fact that it had a lot of sex. So, like, movies were kind of becoming more liberal in the use of nudity and so on, so our producers took advantage of that. And the CFDC, I guess, looking at that, eventually became a partner in this new trend of uh, what you might call, I guess, soft porn movies. It wasn't really porno, I guess, but about the way we, that we think about it now, it was more like softcore porn, I guess. But that was more, it was more like softcore, but that was the trend in the late 60s. So it was mostly just nudity of women. The corporation between 1969 and 71 financed movies called The Initiation. Love is a four-letter word. Human love and films, and all these films I have not seen, and probably nobody should ever see these things anyway. There is one that I do remember. Uh, it was called Deux Femmes en Or, which, uh, from Quebec, which translated uh, would be more like, I guess the uh, English title would be like Two really great gals. Oh, that's a really rough translation. And this movie was made with the money of the CFDC, and it was the most commercially successful, grossing over 2.5 million in Quebec. One out of three Quebecers have seen it, and again, mostly it was comedy, kind of like a Canada's first sex comedy. This movie I have seen, and uh, well, I'm not going to say. It was, uh, it's not bad, but it's just uh, like stupid. And of course, uh, down south in Hollywood, Variety magazine called this trend maple syrup porno. And it basically played a role in establishing commercial base for the Quebec film industry based on softcore and porn movies, basically. I guess nobody remembers those things nowadays. But not everyone was happy about the CFTC's decision to support those types of movies. Of course, people complained and said there was a kind of a bunch of crummy sexploitation movies. Uh, so like a movie that was called Love is a Four-Letter Word. They called it like a pornographic movie with pretensions. 
the government and the corporation received a bunch of complaints from private citizens. Surprisingly, they actually saw them. Yeah, because of course uh, these private these private citizens, I guess they actually saw those movies, obviously. Uh, mostly from, and these complaints came mostly from somehow, I don't know why, southwestern Ontario. I don't know why that would be the specific region that would complain the most, but there you go. And uh, so they were all furious about their tax money spent on these things. The corporation responded to this criticism, saying that in a typical kind of bureaucratic jargon, it said, quote, it cannot take a moral position vis-a-vis its applicant, unquote. After 1971, the issue went down because these movies kind of declined in popularity. Everybody got their fill of nudity, I guess, and they moved on. And just as the author says, this episode highlights the troubles that can face public officials once they become responsible for the content of popular cultural products. The author asks this question. In terms of their creative personnel and distribution contracts, these films were very Canadian, more so than many others. But were they Canadian in terms of their content? So now we get into the whole minefield of Canadian content and what constitutes content and who is Canadian and who's not and who's in charge of what in the movie. That's a slippery slope, as they say. So to fulfill its mandate that it invests in films with significant Canadian creative, artistic, and technical content, the corporation decided to base its principal calculations for support on the level of employment in the curative position. So by 1970, the CFDC required that at least two of their films, three principal creators, producer, director, or screenwriter, be Canadian, while a maximum of two of the other major creative cinematographer, designer, editor, composer, who could be non-Canadian. But the criteria became a source of controversy, as we know then and now. And many Canadian filmmakers said that for those who wanted to circumvent the intent of this criteria, there was still considerable room in which to maneuver, since it's not uncommon for films to have more than one producer or screenwriter. And it's relatively easy to hide the actual contribution that each individual makes on a given production. So a film could qualify as Canadian even though foreigners control each of the creative roles. And on more than one occasion, this is precisely what happened. But by October 1971, the CFDC had exhausted its $10 million fund. And after all kinds of, spe- of typical reports and so on, the statistics revealed that the CFDC had not become a self-financing agency. It had only recovered $600,000, or roughly 9% of its investments, to this point. This was by October 1971. This was not a good time for Hollywood either, actually. In the late 60s, a lot of studios had invested in very expensive movies that almost brought some of the studios close to bankruptcy. In 69, the author says, the American majors had a backlog of unreleased films worth $1.2 billion. The success of inexpensive, independently produced films like Easy Rider and the failure of the big-budget musicals, like in the wake of uh, Sound of Music, had thrown the industry, the American film industry, into confusion. A lot of people of the corporation in CFDC believed that Hollywood's crisis had created a window for low-budget films. And the emphasis on the low-budget, the author says, 
reflected the growing awareness that French-Canadian films were doing much better at the box office than their English-Canadian counterparts. So the idea of making a low-budget movie made a lot of sense. And since the corporation didn't have that much money anyway, you could spread that money more evenly to more movies if you just invest like two hundred, three hundred, or $100,000 per movie. Obviously, the producers of these movies would have to fund the rest. But still, it's, uh, you know, if you only invest in a low amount in these low budgets, you can spread the money around and possibly hit a winner that will make a profit as opposed to just investing like $1 million. Because if you only have $10 million in a year, well, you can invest in 10 movies, assuming that you get your $1 million back. But they never did that. By 1973, the profits of the eight major Hollywood companies had reached $168 million. And as they usually do, the Hollywood studios rebounded quickly from the crisis. And the revenues from Canada alone total $54 million. It was the biggest foreign market for them. Canadian films still occupy less than 5% of available screen time in Canada. So the corporation learned the hard way that production and distribution deals with the Americans were not a guarantee of healthy commercial revenues. On the contrary, the participation of the major American distributors in such films, like uh, Fortune in Men's Eyes, Act of the Heart, Face Off, and so on, left the CFDC with the feeling that they had been used. Surprise, surprise. The CFDC discovered that uh, what many others had already known, first, that the American majors were generally uninterested in Canadian films, second, when they did, or I say when they were, they were the expert at hiding profits from Canadian producers, the uh, CFDC. And third, that in market dominated by monopoly practices, independent Canadian distributors did not have the necessary clout to secure adequate release dates or times for Canadian films. Adequate theatrical distribution for Canadian films was still the exception rather than the rule. Remember that the CFTC was just the bank. They had nothing to do with distribution or the exhibition side. Turns out those things are kind of critical in the, the whole filmmaking process. Under the guidance of the Secretary of State, Gérard Pelletier, from 68 to 72, the federal government tried to develop a comprehensive approach to cultural policy, including a federal film policy. And that's what the government do. They, they need policies to guide them in their decision. It's a very slow-going process, as we saw. But like I said, that's the nature of government everywhere. Interesting thing here, while they were trying to, f to do all this stuff, there was a new chairman of the CFDC at the time, Gracien Gelina, uh, around 69 or something, who said that he was not optimistic about the prospect of developing Canadian film. He argued that as an industry, Canadian cinema must strive to please the American public. There was always conflicts between different sectors of the film industry in Canada. That's, that has been there since the beginning. And having this CFDC with the government trying to come up with a film policy, having this conflict did not help. So eventually, like I said, the CFDC went through $10 million and the cabinet had to approve a second $10 million appropriation in November 71. The Canadian government asked the CFDC to clarify its investment criteria and establish a review committee to develop a five-year plan. So, of course, more bureaucracy. In April 72, they came up with three options. 
One, either they could support films exclusively designed to meet commercial criteria, or two, support projects of a kind which, in its experience, generally received good reviews but only managed to reach a small audience, or three, try to strike a balance by selecting properties which it has felt have an entertainment potential guaranteed to some extent by distributor involvement as well as good films quality confirmed by script readers. Many of the film which is supported largely on the ground of commercial promise had been disappointing from the point of view of audience response. Commercial success appears to be unpredictable, really. So after much discussion, the corporation decided to select option three. It was trying to fashion its own compromise between commercial and cultural. Before this policy was announced, there was a Toronto uh, filmmakers co-op who had some ideas about all this. This uh, Toronto Filmmakers Co-op was a non-profit organization which had 150 independent filmmakers and they had a brief that had been uh, circulated to over 400 filmmakers across the country and had received 200 endorsements. And from the their perspective, the policy, the film policy, had to address the inadequate distribution and exhibition of Canadian films. Their recommendation, of course, was the establishment of a Canadian content quota for all commercial ex exhibitions. An initial quota of 15% for features. They believed it would force the major exhibitors and distributors to become more involved in the development and promotion of Canadian films. They also wanted uh, the establishment of an independent network of government-subsidized theaters to exhibit non-commercial films art films, NFE films, and foreign films, and the development of a national film school, better access to the, the NFB's facilities for private filmmakers, better exhibition of Canadian films on the CBC and private TV networks, re-evaluation of film financing, a new system of pre-production grants, federal tax on revenues of non-Canadian films, and so on. All very, uh, as far as I'm concerned, very reasonable things. Now, we're not being funny. The co-op's position on Canadian content came close to the CFDC's own that I just mentioned. But in general, the brief symbolized the continuing conflict between different interests within the private film industry. And of course, a compromise was tried. Magder says here, eventually, the CFDC's halo faded quickly because its films were not having the desired effect, neither making money nor raising a national consciousness. The government uh, stopped short of uh, taking measures that would seriously disrupt established market practices, which basically means angering Hollywood. Here the author makes his own point that to explain the situation that we had in Canada relations of dependency, dependency on, of course, the U.S. And he makes a few interesting points here, basically saying that in the first place, a large segment of Canadians have come to rely on the existence of American capital money in Canada as a source of its livelihood, so either direct or indirectly. Like in the case of people who manage and direct American subsidiaries in Canada, like famous players. So people who obviously depend on outsiders for their business, or indirectly, as the case of independent exhibitors and producers and film workers, who basically are dependent also on what's happening in the U.S., Again, the branch plant model. 
So here he makes more interesting points that not that many people uh, do make when writing about the Canadian film industry. He says, quote, that Canadians have come to enjoy and identify with much of what passes for American culture. There has never been sustained or broad-based opposition to the fact that Hollywood, in the words of the Massey Report, quote, refashions us in its own image, unquote. By the early 70s, if not earlier, Canadians had by and large come to regard Hollywood films as the normal and natural form cinema should take. Any radical attempt to challenge seriously this relationship would surely be met with public displeasure, puzzlement, and resistance. Chapter 8 By the early 70s, the distribution and exhibition of films had become a major issue. Not only was it difficult for Canadian films to get adequate screen access, but the revenues generated by Canadian ticket sales were being sent back to the U.S. to support the production of more Hollywood films. The government thought there's basically two ways to fix this problem. Exhibition quotas and a box office levy. A box office levy is a tax on ticket sales that goes towards financing film production. And exhibition quotas force the movie exhibitors to show a required percentage of Canadian films in movie theaters. At the time the CFDC was established, Britain had a screen quota of 30% for British first-run films. France, Italy, and Spain also had exhibition quotas. All the European countries mentioned also had adopted a levy of one form or another. Canada did have a kind of levy. There was a thing called an amusement tax. It was applied in most provinces, but the revenues generated did not go directly to support film production. Theatrical legislation is a provincial responsibility in Canada. In the end, the government sought a way around the problem because they couldn't or wouldn't directly confront the Hollywood majors. Of course, there were theater exhibitors here in Canada who didn't like the idea of quotas and levies. So the government sought a way around. It found a solution in something called capital cost allowance. And what's this thing? Well, it's a deal that worked kind of like this. An investor places like $30,000 of their money in a film whose uh, total budget cost is 100000 So the cost allowance is calculated on the total cost. So if an investor is in the 50% tax bracket, he or she will enjoy a $30,000 tax deduction in the first year, 12000 in the second year, and so on. So the leverage at, let's say, 2 to 1 is relatively small. But by 1972, some deals were based on leverages of 10 to 1 or more, which is a lot. This leveraged cost thing was behind one of the early attempts to establish a stable and large-scale Canadian production company. In March 1972, Harold Greenberg, president of Bellevue Pate, announced a multi-million dollar fund to augment the CFDC loan, which was kind of nice. By the fall of that year, the CFDC fund had been used for six movies. The most notable was a movie, kind of a Hollywood-type movie, called The Neptune Factor. It had Ben Gazzara in it, uh, Walter Pidgeon, Canadian actor, and it had a distribution deal from 20th Century Fox. So I guess they were playing in the big leagues with that movie. You can't say I've seen this movie. It's, it was a big deal at the time. Now, of course, it's completely forgotten. 
so we can probably guess that it went nowhere. According to a report done for the Secretary of State in 1973, there were 150 companies engaged in film production. So you would think that this would be a good thing, but it was more a sign of an unstable industry because most of the company's uh, total output was less than 100,000 a year. Half the companies had fewer than five employees and three quarters had fewer than 10. The production sector had poor links with the major distributors and they were all trying to maintain profit and failing. So in other words, this new tax thing wasn't working. It was already pretty precarious, as they say, and the industry was toppling on the edge. And then typically the government, the, the Revenue Canada and the Finance Department began to question the legality and integrity of this leveraged investment, the CCA, Capital Cost Allowance. So in early 1970, producers were warned by the bureaucrats that the current rash of leveraged capital cost allowances investments deals was unacceptable. And in May, they were told that the loophole would be closed in six months. And it was. By 1974, most everyone agreed that the industry was in crisis. And the only bright spot was the release of a movie made in 1974 by Ted Kotcheff called the Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, based on a book by Mordecai Richler. And this movie was actually a big hit. It had a deal with Paramount with distribution rights. It was critically well-received. It was commercially successful and even won an award at some film festival in Europe, I think. But you couldn't base the success of an industry based on this one film. Despite this bright light, the industry was on the verge of collapse. In 1974, there was a standing committee from the government on broadcasting films and the arts, another committee, and they had a meeting with the newly formed lobby group called the Council of Canadian Filmmakers. They were angry and frustrated by a government and industry that apparently held Canadian films written, produced, directed, acted, and made by Canadians in high disregard. And this new lobby group launched a political offensive, so they met with CFDC officials, and all the other bureaucrats, and basically they said that, you know, they were happy that the government had done something about establishing a fund for film production. That was good. But after six years, it ain't working. The film financing system doesn't work, and there was only 13 films produced in English Canada in 1972, six in 73, and only one in 74. The film distribution network doesn't work, in 1972, less than 2% of the movies shown in Ontario were Canadian, less than 5% in Quebec. The exhibition system doesn't work. The foreign-dominated exhibition industry, well, Hollywood, basically, grossed over $140 million at the box office in Canada, and it's recycling only nickels and dimes back into future domestic production. So something's wrong, and, and we're not happy, they said. With the establishment of the CFDC, the government hoped to develop a framework for a healthy Canadian feature film industry without instituting measures that would anger Hollywood. There were also concerns that the Canadian public would not wholeheartedly endorse protective measures. While opinion polls showed that a majority of Canadians would support measures to increase the exhibition of Canadian films, the support was soft, and a majority also said they would be disinclined to go and see them. And if a box office quota could be depicted as limiting access to American films, the federal government ran the risk of a public backlash. 
The CFDC was on record as supporting both the quotas and the levies, but the officials within the Department of Finance and the Treasury Board were steadfast in their opinion that Canadian films should make it on their own. Government started to discuss quotas and levies in the fall of 1972, and they tried different things. They tried to convince some independent distributors to group themselves together and become bigger. They then could try to compete against the Americans. And that went nowhere. But this pointed out that the governments wanted to see some kind of large-scale Canadian corporation establish themselves in the film industry, either distributors or exhibitors. And there was a deal from someone, well, not a deal, a proposal, from a company called Astral Films that said they would start a third theatrical movie chain if the government provided the company with a loan of $2.5 million. And that went nowhere. There was another committee called the Porteous Committee. And of course, they wrote a paper about film distribution. And they said basically the, the government should begin talks with the provinces to establish a box office levy. And by 1972 rates, a levy of five cents would have brought close to $4.5 million a year, more than the CFDC had invested in any one year to date. But that was just a proposal. A government official said that maybe we should have a voluntary quota as a way of avoiding conflict with Hollywood, because, of course, that's always the priority, as we've seen. By July 1973, the government announced that a voluntary quota had been successfully negotiated with a major exhibition chain. Famous players would be responsible for two-thirds of the films, Odeon for the other third. The CFDC would share the cost of promotion and publicity. And so back in these days, a quota was established to show Canadian films in Hollywood-owned movie theaters. That did actually happen. The author says here, the voluntary quotas were going to be part of the effort to contest the habits and behaviors that had worked against community culture for such a long time, but they weren't going to be much of an imposition. The Council of Canadian Filmmakers put out a statement in the late 70s where they said that the problem of film as art and film as commerce are separate and distinct and require separate policies. The government must make two clearly defined sections of this unruly jumble, public and private, and stop this schizophrenic requirement that both fit into the same mold. Another report was done, no! this time by government's uh, Bureau of Management Consulting. And this bureau said pretty much the same thing, that there was a pull between art and commerce, and that basically, you know, they should basically make up their mind at the CFDC, which one are they going to do? The government should make up their minds. So if cultural objectives were less important, then the CFDC should concentrate on the development of a few established Canadian film companies for commercial film production. And if the cultural objectives are paramount, so to speak, then the only viable option would be like an arts council for the, the CFDC. So the corporation would make grants to the producers. And so it would be either one or the other. The report said that there's no consensus within the CFDC or even the film industry in Canada on the policies that should be followed by the CFDC. So basically, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So the government, actually this time a liberal government, wanted uh, the feature film industry to be driven by private sector forces. That's what the government wanted. And the CFDC eventually came to endorse this principle. 
that Canadian feature film production had to be developed along capitalist lines. Now, remember, the provinces are responsible for theatrical legislation. So movie theaters in, in their provinces, whatever goes on there, revenues, monitoring, censorship, and all that, that's a provincial responsibility. So in January 1973, a report commissioned by the Ontario government, another report, recommended the adoption of a quota whereby every theater in the province would be required to show eight weeks of Canadian features over a two-year period. Now, of course, this is just a report. This was supposed to be an incentive for the exhibition of Canadian films, preferably in Ontario. So the film was made in Ontario, then the exhibitor and producer would share the receipts from the 10% tax. So if the film was not made in Ontario, but still Canadian, then the producer's share would revert to the Ontario Film Office to help the production. This report, called the Bassett Report, had fashioned a recommendation that would give exhibitors a small financial incentive to show films. And of course, at the same time, the tax rebate would not in any way affect the financial receipts of the Hollywood majors, because of course, well, you know the rest, you don't want to upset them. Again, here the author says, quote, Indeed, the major effect of this proposed quota might have been to discriminate against films made in other parts of Canada, unquote. But this was all just a suggestion and was never implemented. So the Canadian government decided to begin negotiating with the provinces. Some people in the provinces, like Manitoba, were okay with it. They endorsed the need for the quota and even wanted the federal government to purchase and operate one of the film distribution systems in Canada. And that was the most radical position. In contrast, the Alberta government's officer for film development said, quote, Film is a business like making and selling shoes. It must stand on its own. Film must be entertainment. Otherwise, it's of no use. Unquote. So that's Alberta. In Quebec, that's a whole different thing. The filmmakers there had become accustomed to endless series of false promises. Someone remarked that since 1962, there had been 16 reports, one white paper, four draft laws, a bill number 52 dealing with censorship, research trips to study foreign film industries, and numerous interventions, meetings, lunches, telegrams, and articles. And what did all that produce? There was only meager support for the production and exhibition of Quebec-based features. So, frustrated by the lack of public support in Quebec, there was an association of Quebec filmmakers called the ARFQ, and it took direct action on November 22, 1974. They occupied the Censorship Bureau in Quebec. The filmmakers would not leave until a law on the cinema was tabled in the provincial government and a public parliamentary commission on film was called. The government stalled, of course, while the public support for the action grew. Occupation lasted 11 days, but as the Christmas season approached, distributors and exhibitors became increasingly anxious that there would not be time to classify their new films, of course, mostly Hollywood films, for the important box office period of the year, Christmas. So, the Quebec government decided that the office had to be cleared. So, in the midst of a heavy snowstorm, of course, the police were called in and the filmmakers were carried out and dumped on the sidewalk. 
In April of the following year, the Quebec government introduced another draft film bill, I guess, called Bill 1. It offered more financial support for the production of Quebec films and suggested maybe that, yeah, maybe we might have quotas, maybe. In Ontario, William Davis, the premier, said he was personally against a mandatory quota. So with all this conflict between the provinces, well, nothing happened. Eventually, the federal government announced a new film policy. On the 5th of August 1975, there were two principal measures. First, a new income tax, a regulation that allows investors to invest and deduct 100% of their investment in the first year. It also announced that after an extensive negotiation between famous players and Odeon, they had agreed to a voluntary quota of four weeks per theater a year. Most people were pleased about the improved tax write-off, but beyond that, there was not much to praise. The theater chains had also promised an investment program of at least $1.7 million to aid Canadian films. So, of course, there was another study of the film industry. That's it, I'm out of here. It was called the Tompkins Report, and it was released in March 1976, and said basically pretty much the same thing that the government had pretty much always said from the beginning, that the film industry should be first and foremost a business, and that feature film production had to be structured as a business. The report said, It's our considered opinion that a Canadian feature film industry has to aim for a worldwide market, and any actions taken by the various governments in Canada should lead to this. And of course, this report evaded the perennial problem that the government had always avoided, and I was dealing with Hollywood. It was always pretty much tiptoeing against not trying to upset the Americans. And the report ignored evidence of the CFDC's difficulties in dealing with Hollywood majors, and to the extent to which profits from distribution in Canada were going to support the production of films elsewhere. Meaning that when you paid your dollars to see a Hollywood film, they didn't stay in Canada. Effectively, Canadians were in a way subsidizing not the production of Canadian films, but the production of Hollywood movies when they paid their admission fee. Strangely, the report contained an explicit bias towards the production of English-language feature films, arguing that films made in Quebec, while modestly successful, were limited in their international appeal. And the author Magder says here, there was an odd conclusion because at that time there was a success back in those days from the Swedish film industry, whose films were seen around the world. And of course they were in Swedish. So what exactly are you talking about, CFDC? There's a strange kind of blind spot or a bias by the government about English language films. But the report had made its point. Canada's feature film industry had to be driven by big budget, internationally oriented, mostly English language films produced by a private sector geared towards commercial success. Other measures were not necessary. In the 70s, anyway, there were a few CFDC-backed films, such as one called Outrageous, and another one called Who Has Seen the Wind, and another one called Why Shoot Teacher, and all these were made in 1977. So they were pretty good year. it was a pretty good year there. And these were critically praised and also made some money. So it wasn't a complete, complete desert anyway. But there was some evidence that English language filmmakers were still interested in producing films that did not abandon cultural considerations. 
But $20 million later, the CFD seal still had not been able to establish a stable environment for the production of Canadian films. And the author says here that Canada became the number one revenue-generating foreign market for Hollywood films. In 1974, the American majors recouped $54 million from the Canadian market. France and Great Britain, each with twice our population, had recouped 35 and $36 million respectively. In other words, Canada was way more profitable for Hollywood. The voluntary quota program was a sham. It symbolized the government's discomfort and unwillingness to deal with the issue of adequate distribution and exhibition of Canadian film. It had a desperate hope that the problem would go away, and it didn't. And with all these endless, endless reports and proposals and counter-proposals, two rather predictable options surfaced. The first one, I think we've talked about that before from this filmmaker association, CCFM, they argued that the market structure for future film, future Canadian films, would be, with few exceptions, unprofitable. So instead of trying to make commercially viable films and failing, the government should begin to treat Canadian filmmaking as an art that merited funding along the lines of the Canadian Council. A theatrical levying quota would provide the money and the venue for production and exhibition of fully subsidized Canadian films. But here's something probably kind of funny, I guess. I don't know if this comes from the author or from the report, but it said, quote, in time, with the film setup just mentioned, Canadians might even grow accustomed to the oddity of seeing Canadian films in Canada, unquote. The second option, well, of course, that's the commercial one, which was in the Tompkins report, and said that it should, basically, the CFDC should develop a Hollywood North to make films that would be attractive to the Americans. And, of course, it would sell in the mainstream international market also. So you might remember that this is how Nat Taylor, remember him, had envisioned the film industry. And it was also the view of Ray Peck, which, remember him, we saw him earlier in the early days of... Uh, or the history of Canadian films, Ray Peck. And even John Grierson uh, mentioned this idea of a branch plant. For the government, anyway, the second option was the path of least resistance, because then they didn't have to deal with Hollywood. So they leaned towards this commercial option, and the industry and government geared themselves toward the fabrication of a Hollywood branch plant film industry in Canada. That's the end of the podcast. Unfortunately, in this episode, as you heard, there was even more bureaucratic jargon, more reports, more committee reports, and more reports from committees. I've skipped over a few of them, but I couldn't avoid all of them. My only excuse for including all these things is that I wanted to show what steps Canada had to go through to get an actual film industry. The process was painful and laborious, as you heard, but necessary. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com, nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now.